Well, let me invite you to open your Bibles uh, with me this morning to Acts chapter 15. And we are starting a um, kind of a new section in the book of Acts. Paul and Barnabas have just completed their first missionary journey. Uh, God has used them mightily, and they have built churches through a number of cities in the Galatia region. And so they have now come back to Antioch, their home church, their sending church. They're on furlough, if you will. But uh, there's a time of peace and rest, but it will not last. There's a storm cloud brewing on the horizon of such significance and potential. It could blow like a hurricane against the church and tear it apart and destroy it. So what we're reading in Acts chapter 15 is this incredible controversy that now arises within the church. And again, it threatens to undermine the gospel of grace for a gospel of works. And so we're going to pick it up in Acts chapter 15 verse 1. I'll go ahead and read down through verse 21. And we're going to deal with the primary issue that is being dealt with and how it's re, uh, resolved within uh, this early church council that is called to deal with it. So I'll begin reading uh, the inspired Word of God in Acts 15 verse 1. So please give very careful attention to the, to the reading of the Word of God. Verse 1. Some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some others of them should go to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning this issue. Therefore, being sent on their way by the church, they were passing through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and were bringing great joy to all the brethren. And when they arrived at Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed stood up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them, i.e. the Gentiles, and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. And the apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter. And there had been much, after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit just as He also did to us. And He made no distinction between them and us, between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke 
which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. And all the people kept silent. And they were listening to Barnabas and Paul as they were relating what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. That would be during the first missionary journey. And after they had stopped speaking, James answered saying, this is not the Apostle James, but the half-brother of Jesus, saying, brethren, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. With this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After these things, I will return and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen, and I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by My name, says the Lord who makes these things known from long ago. Therefore, it is My judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles, but that we write to them that they abstain from things contaminated by idols and from fornication and from what is strangled and from blood. For Moses from ancient generations has in every city those who preach him, since he is read in the synagogues every Sabbath. And may God bless the reading of his word. Now after James makes this defense of the salvation of the Gentiles, then in the following section, the apostles and the elders come together. They're in agreement with that. They draft a letter and they send this letter by, by couriers all the way through all the other cities, through all the Gentile cities, announcing their verdict on this important theological issue. Well, so here's a controversy. The issue at hand is that uh, Paul and Barnabas in Antioch had been reporting at the end of chapter 14 how the Lord had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And this caused a lot of rejoicing, but not by all of them. The peace and tranquility at Antioch is going to be broken by some new teachers that come up from Judea or Jerusalem. And they began to teach a different gospel. Now the Jewish believers in Antioch, prior to these other Jews coming up from Jerusalem, are persuaded by Paul and Barnabas that the Gentiles, by faith alone, could enter into the blessings of Abraham. That they could receive the promise given to Israel of the Holy Spirit. They could receive the new covenant blessings of the forgiveness of their sins and be followers of the Messiah just by, being, by their faith alone. And then they get baptized to join the church. Without becoming Jews. Without being circumcised without keeping the law of Moses, that Gentiles can enter into the covenant community, enjoy these Israel's blessings of the Spirit, become a, a child of Abraham by faith alone. And they understood that. That's what Paul had taught them. But down in Jerusalem, things were different. 
there were among the apostles some of those Jewish men who basically were legalistic holdouts. They began to resist the gospel of grace that Gentiles are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And this smaller group began to teach that no, Gentiles could not have conversion without circumcision. They couldn't be saved by faith in Christ without also keeping the law of Moses. Or they couldn't really be committed to their Messiah without also be committed to Judaism. The two go together. That's what they began to teach. So they were tenaciously clinging to the Mosaic Law. They are the old guard, the legalist, the party of the circumcision, or we just simply refer to them as the Judaizers. The Judaizers were the Jewish believers, so-called, who wanted to combine the Gospel of Christ with obedience to the Law of Moses for salvation. And this was a toxic mix of truth and error. It's serving someone on a platter a glass of milk that's been laced with cyanide or laced with arsenic. It's a poisonous brew that will kill you if you drink it. That's their understanding of how a Gentile gets saved. He needs Christ, faith in Christ, but that's not enough. You need circumcision. You need to be obedient to the law of Moses. So again, they're fine with Gentiles being saved as long as the Gentiles become Jews. Then they can become saved. The gospel of the grace of God that Paul and Barnabas preached, that the other apostles, the apostles understood, was to them a threat to their national identity. It was a threat that needed to be overthrown in their mind. So their motto was, faith in Christ was not enough. Christ is necessary, but Christ is not sufficient. You need more. And these Gentiles need to be circumcised and they need to keep the law of Moses. Now on top of this theological conviction that they had, they're also catching wind that the Gentiles are flooding into the church. In some churches, they outnumber the Jewish believers. And so they're hearing all this and this raises their concern. They're coming in, but no one's forcing them to be circumcised yet. So they're really not saved yet. So they feel like it's their responsibility to go out and set the record straight. So you can understand this. I mean, I can understand it. The difficulty of these Jews letting go of their national distinctives of, of the nation of Israel. Because after all, they've had the, the, the ritual of circumcision for 2,000 years ever since Abraham. They had the law of Moses and all the rituals and the ceremonial laws and the purity laws and the dietary laws for 1,500 years. So they've had many generations where this was God-given to them that set them apart from all the other nations and they protected that. They were jealous of that heritage. So I can understand on the surface the difficulty of letting go of all of that 
because it was woven into the very warp and woof of their very religious existence. The temple, the priesthood, the animal sacrifices, the, all that went on in the old covenant uh, worship of God. And yet Paul was teaching now that the Gentiles can come in and be saved without having to do all that. And that was bothersome to them. The Judaizers did not understand that all of those aspects of the Old Covenant law, those, those uh, national markers for Israel that set them apart, were all temporary shadows of what would be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The animal sacrifices fulfilled in Christ. The temple fulfilled in Christ. Uh, the seed of Abraham fulfilled in Christ. All of that is fulfilled in Christ. And it was designed to be temporary, designed to fade away with the coming of the new covenant Messiah, Jesus Christ. It's kind of like the, the spent rocket fuel tanks on the space shuttle. Remember seeing that? The space shuttle takes off and it's got these two great big large rocket launchers on the side. And it propels them up to the, you know, way up into our, our atmosphere and then eventually they, they spend all, all of their fuel. And so now it's designed that those two big rocket thrusters, if you will, become detached and they fall back down to earth. So that the ceremonial law, the dietary law, so much of this caught up in, in the law of Moses was designed to be temporary. It fulfilled its purpose that God gave it to, to lead them to Christ, to be a tutor, to direct them to Christ. Once Christ comes, you don't need to live by that anymore. Never again. You can't put new wine into old wineskins. And that's what these Judaizers are trying to do. They're trying to pour in the new wine of the Gospel, the grace of God and Jesus Christ back into the old wineskins of Judaism. Circumcision. Keeping the law of Moses. Can't do it. So we read in verse 1 that these men come down from Judea. Understand Jerusalem is the center, the capital. In any direction you go out, you're going down from their mindset. So even though they're going north, they're going down to to Antioch, and they began teaching the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now later on, as the apostles and the elders uh, evaluate all of this, if you want to look over in verse 24, they say, since we have heard that some of our number to whom we gave no instruction." have disturbed you with their words unsettling your souls. In other words, these guys were not endorsed by the apostles. Uh, they were kind of self-appointed spokesmen. They may have claimed they came from the apostles, but uh, they were not sent by the apostles. But their message was clear. Unless you Gentiles get circumcised, you cannot be saved. It's impossible. There's no negotiation. So these Judaizers were coming in with a message to the brethren teaching that you've got to be circumcised if you want to be saved. Now the champions of the gospel of grace, verse 2, we have Paul and Barnabas, and they engage in great dissension and debate with them. 
The word for dissension means to rise up in open defiance against what they were teaching. To overthrow it. To rebel against it. So Paul and Barnabas stand up and they start duking it out going toe-to-toe with these guys standing for the true Gospel against their false Gospel. And then at the end of verse 2, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some of the others, Titus is among them, should go to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning the issue. Isn't it interesting that it's the apostles and the elders, plural? Just like we saw last week. The apostles are a special band. They're eventually going to leave Jerusalem, go out to all these other places and preach the Gospel. So they're not going to always be in Jerusalem. The apostles eventually will spread out and go on and preach the Gospel in other in other locations. So the church there appoints elders, a plurality of elders, just like Paul and Barnabas did in all the churches in Galatia. That was the leadership. The new leadership was a plurality of elders. Again, so you find the consistency with what Paul and Barnabas did up in Galatia. But we find that uh, they propose a meeting and uh, Paul and Barnabas and a few others, they're going to go to Jerusalem to talk with the apostles and the elders about this big issue that has disturbed the peace in Antioch. So in verse 3 and 4, we read that being sent on their way by the church, they were passing through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and were bringing great joy to all the brethren. And when they arrived at Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. So again, they came back and they gave the report that God was saving these Gentiles. I mean, the Spirit of God was falling on them. They were receiving the forgiveness of all without becoming a Jew, without circumcision, purely by faith alone. And all the Gentiles rejoice in that. The men especially. You can see why. So they give this report as they're on the way down to Jerusalem. They arrive in Jerusalem. And uh, they, they share what God has done. And there's great agreement and harmony. And then verse 5. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed stood up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. It is necessary. There's no other way for the Gentiles to be saved. They must be circumcised. They must keep the law of Moses. It is necessary. This is not optional. Now notice in verse 5, but it says the Pharisees who had believed. Well, not all times when the Bible says someone believe, is it saying that they were genuinely saved? There is a, a type of faith that will not save you, and I think they had it at this point. In other words, as Pharisees, they had no problem with the resurrection, so they believed that Jesus rose from the dead. They believed that Jesus was necessary for salvation, but not sufficient. They had a faith in a Jewish Messiah, but a Jewish Messiah who would make Jewish disciples. That's kind of their faith in Jesus. He's their Jewish Messiah, 
So he's going to make more Jews, ultimately. They're going to come into the Jewish fold. And as long as the Gospel stayed in line with the law of Moses, then these Judaizers, their faith was okay with that. As long as Jesus stayed in their Jewish box, then He was their Messiah. They, they believed in Him in that. But once it starts becoming evident that the, Christ brought a different Gospel than the Gospel they were teaching, then suddenly there's an issue. There's a problem. So even though it says they believed, well, probably not a true faith at this point. So we have the apostles and the elders, verse 6. They come together to look into the matter. And after there's much debate, then we have basically three reports that are given. And this will go all the way down through verse 21. The first is uh, with Peter, and then Paul and Barnabas, and then James. Paul and Barnabas kind of do a tag team on their thing. But they call this council meeting, this is called the Jerusalem Council uh, it's uh, incredibly important. Luke, in writing Acts, is devoting a large chunk of, of material to it because it's dealing with an incredibly important topic. What is necessary for a Gentile to be saved? That's the issue. What is necessary for salvation? Is it faith alone? Or is it faith plus something? Is it faith in Christ or is faith in Christ plus you doing something? That was a watershed issue. If the church doesn't get this right, the church will be torn asunder and it will be, in many practical ways, greatly hampered in its ministry. When you think about it, this is really one of the most important questions you can ever ask. What must I do to be saved? What must I do to receive eternal life? And your understanding of the answer to that question is of utmost importance. So this was an explosive issue. And that's why Acts 15 is really another one of those watershed chapters in Acts. Just like Pentecost and chapter 2, Paul's conversion in chapter 9. I mean, based on the amount of material given to it, this is important. And you, we can certainly understand why. The Gospel of Grace, we're happy to report, uh, prevailed. And as John Stott concluded, the result of this uh, council at Jerusalem, he said that the council dealt with the issue and liberated the gospel from its Jewish swaddling clothes into being God's message for all mankind. So that Jews and Gentiles are all going to be saved the same way. And it has nothing to do with circumcision or keeping the law of Moses. So we start quickly and I'm just going to real briefly highlight this and then we're going to move into the book of Galatians because Paul deals with exactly the same issue in his letter to the Galatians. So we pick it up, for example, in verse 7. Uh, Peter stands up and he says in verse 7, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of, of the gospel and believe. So God chose him to be the one to bring the gospel first to the Gentiles. 
And then he goes on to say in verse 8, And God who knows the heart testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as He did to us. In other words, we got our gift of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost in Acts 2. Holy Spirit was promised to Israel through the prophet Joel, prophet Isaiah, prophet Zechariah. All promises that God would give to Israel the gift of the Holy Spirit. And that was poured out upon them in its fulfillment in Acts 2. But the amazing thing is now, according to Peter, is that God gave our gift to the Jews who believed without being circumcised, without keeping the law of Moses. They received the gift of the Holy Spirit just as we did. This is incredible. Verse 8. Then in verse 9, And He made no distinction between us, Jews, and them, Gentiles, cleansing their heart by faith. Not faith and circumcision or keeping the law. By faith alone. Their hearts were cleansed. They were forgiven of all of their sins. And then he adds to that in verse 10, Now therefore, why do you, you Judaizers, put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples, the Gentile disciples, a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? Why are you putting this yoke of the law on them? We couldn't even keep it. We couldn't obey it. We couldn't ever be saved by keeping the law or by circumcision. Why are you trying to put that on them? We, we can't even do it. We're not saved that way either. And if you do that, you're testing God. Now, how, why does he say they're testing God? Because God designed for those elements of Old Testament, Old Covenant Judaism to be temporary, to fade away. They were the shadow. When the, when the fullness of the light comes, you no longer need the shadow. And yet, you're going to take that which was designed to be temporary in nature and force it as an ongoing eternal requirement, if you will, for salvation. You're testing God. So, Peter is quite bold in confronting them. And then from there, we go on to uh, verse 12 where Barnabas and Paul uh, basically give their report of the signs and miracles that God did among the Gentiles when they came to faith in Christ. So basically, God had endorsed His acceptance of them into the covenant community by all these miracles that Paul performed in his ministry to the Gentiles. That's verse 12. And then in verse 13, James gives his report, quoting Scripture from Amos chapter 9 saying that the Old Testament prophets agree with what's going on here. They agree. We'll look at this more next week. It's a very interesting uh, use of the Old Testament. But basically, these give their reports, and then they give their conclusion. And James sums up his conclusion in verse 19. Therefore, it is my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles, but that we write to them that they abstain from things contaminated by idols and from fornication and from what is strangled and from blood. And then in verse 21, basically out of respect for the Jewish believers that are in your churches and where you go to worship. But notice what he says, we don't, we're not going to burden the Gentiles with anything. In other words, for salvation, they do not have to be circumcised. 
They do not have to keep the law of Moses. But out of respect for your weaker brethren, the Jewish brethren that are still caught up in these things, then here's some general wisdom principles for keeping peace within the church. But it's not necessary to their salvation at all. That's very clear as it comes out. The apostles and the elders in verse 22 agree basically with exactly what James said. They write a letter which says basically what James had just said. And that's sent out to all the, all the churches. So basically the agreement was the Gentiles are saved without circumcision, without keeping the law of Moses. But again, to keep peace within the churches where there's Jews and Gentiles, Gentiles be sensitive to their background, be sensitive to their heritage, so don't unnecessarily rile them up. You don't have to do it. You don't have to be circumcised, keep the law. But if they do, just, just don't do anything that's going to inflame the fellowship. Try to keep the peace. But it's not required any of that for you for salvation. So basically the council officially affirmed the gospel of the grace of God. And we can rejoice in that. However, there's a counterattack. And the situation occurs up in Galatia where Paul and Barnabas have just completed their first missionary journey. The Judaizers did not accept the verdict of the Jerusalem council. They did not throw in the towel, but they continued to spread their false gospel to other places. And they migrated their way up to the churches of Galatia that Paul and Barnabas had founded. And they began to teach the same Judaizers gospel to them. And they began to teach that Gentiles must be circumcised to be saved. The very same issue that was dealt with at the Jerusalem Council. So now Paul is going to have to deal with it again in his own churches up there. Now what we see in this is that um, heresies do not die easily. Satan is always heavily invested in heresy. And he wants to keep it alive as long as he can. Remember, he's a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And one of his, his best methods to devour people, spiritually speaking, is to poison the gospel of grace and turn it into a gospel of works. And so that's what he's doing. So Paul is going to write then the letter to the Galatian churches that he was a part of founding to help deal with this issue of the Judaizers' gospel that has now penetrated his own churches. So if you will, turn over to Galatians, because I think this is going to clarify uh, some of these issues for us. And let us know what an important issue this was, not only in Antioch that resulted in the Council of Jerusalem, but also in other churches. And particularly here, the the churches in the Galatian region. Now, as you found Galatians, um, S.L. Johnson, one of my professors in seminary, said that Galatians is Paul's most explosive letter. And that's definitely true. Uh, When you read the letter, as you all have, I'm sure many times, uh, you sense how how much Paul is filled with a holy rage that the Judaizers have invaded his turf, if you will. 
they've come into His churches and they began to pollute the Gospel and poison the Gospel waters to lead as many astray as they could. So Paul is like a, he's like a mama bear protect, protecting his little cubs. And he's taking this personal. And so he's going to write this letter to his churches who have been influenced by these Judaizers and some of them are actually beginning to buy into it. And so it's a very harsh letter. It's a strong letter. It's an in-your-face letter. It's a letter of condemnation. And so it, but it very much ties with exactly the same issue that we see in, uh, in the Jerusalem Council. In the process of writing this letter, Paul is angry with his own churches because they have so easily departed from the gospel of grace to this kind of work-based gospel. He'll say in chapter 1, I'm amazed that you have so quickly deserted Him who called you by His grace. I'm amazed. He can't believe it. In Galatians 3, he says, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? In Galatians 4, he says, Tell me, you want to be under the law. Don't you listen to the law of God? In chapter 5, he says, You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? And then back in Galatians 4, he says, My children, a a more tender note, My children with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you. I'm going to have to give birth to you again because you are so wayward and and, uh, some of you in embracing this false gospel. So through the book of Galatians, Paul is defending the gospel of the grace of God. That you're saved by God's grace. It is a gift. There is nothing that you can do to earn it or deserve it. It is God's gift to those who repent of their sins and believe in Jesus Christ. And He comes with a vengeance in attacking this false gospel. So let's look at how the gospel of grace is defended. Turn to Galatians 1. Look at verse 6. All these, I'm sure, are familiar verses to you. Paul writes, Galatians, Only there are some who are disturbing you and wanting to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you have received, he is to be accursed. Believe in Christ and be circumcised. That gospel, that preacher, is accursed. He is cursed by God. I mean, that's the seriousness of what Paul is dealing with here. Now, Paul probably wrote this letter And again, if you read the commentaries, there's a big debate on when Paul actually is writing this letter to his his churches in Galatia. I'm going to take the view that he writes it after the Jerusalem Council. Now, others argue that it occurs before, and there's good evidence on that, but I'm going to assume that the Jerusalem Council is over. Paul and Barnabas have gone back to Antioch. And then eventually they'll launch out on their second missionary journey. 
On their second missionary journey, the first place they go to is these churches in Galatia. To Derby, Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. And they're just ministering. They're probably giving the decrees and the report of the Jerusalem Council about these issues. And then they move on. And that's when these Judaizers come in and they start doing their dastardly deeds. They sneak in. They claim they're from the apostles. They begin to tell them, no, 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 you've got to be circumcised. And there's, they come with such a persuasiveness that some begin to buy into it. Later on, on second missionary journey, Paul hears wind of what's going on. Someone comes and brings him a report. And maybe when he's in Corinth, he writes this letter back to the church of Galatia. The churches of Galatia. And he's just steaming with what's happening there. He, he, he just anathematizes anybody who's bringing that Judaistic gospel. And then he emphasizes throughout Galatians that you cannot be saved by the works of the law. Circumcision, you cannot be saved by the works of the law. So let's look, look at chapter 2 of Galatians and look at verse 16. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. Three times in that one verse, he is hammered down. You cannot be saved by the works of the law. The law cannot save you. Look at verse 21, same chapter. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. You're never going to be righteous by the law. It's impossible. Then look at chapter 3 and verse 1. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you before who eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Now, these are primarily Gentiles that he's writing to. When you received the Spirit, was it because you had kept all the works of the law or because you believed the Gospel? Verse 3, Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Oh, you foolish Galatians. And then drop down, if you will, to chapter 5, verse 1, where again he, he points this out clearly. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Same yoke that was mentioned back in the uh, Jerusalem Council. Peter says, why put a yoke on the necks of the Gentile? We can't even keep it. And he says, are you trying to again subject yourselves to a yoke of slavery? That is, keeping the regulations and the ceremonies of the Mosaic Law? Verse 2, Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. You have been severed from Christ. You who are seeking to be justified by the law. You have fallen from grace. Man, 
Those are tough words. And all they're saying is just look, faith in Christ plus just one thing, circumcision. And Paul says, you have been severed from Christ. You have fallen from grace. Christ will be of no benefit to you. If you think that you can contribute one thing to the work of Christ for your salvation, then you're holding to an anathema gospel. One thing. So again, I think we see why this is such an important issue to the Apostle Paul. Uh, Any other gospel is anathema. And anyone who thinks they can be saved by the works of the law is certainly self-deceived. Why is that? Well, as he points out, look again at verse 3. Every man who receives circumcision is under obligation to keep the whole law. In other words, when it comes to obedience to the law, it's, it's all or nothing. It's you got to do it all. And if you want to submit to circumcision, uh-uh, you're not off the hook there. huh? If you think you've got to just be circumcised and then you're saved, no. If you submit to one part of the law, you've got to do the whole thing. Or it doesn't, it doesn't count. Look, for example, what he said back in chapter 3, verse 10 on this very matter. For as many, chapter 3, verse 10, for as many as are the, of the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. So you got to do it all. Can't just say, okay, I'm going to do circumcision and then I'm good to go. Nuh-uh. You do that, you got to do it all. It's all or nothing. You can't just set aside the rest of it. It all hangs together. James chapter 2. Same James who spoke in the uh, Jerusalem Council wrote the letter of James in the New Testament. The half-brother of Jesus, not the Apostle would say, whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point has become guilty of it all. And that's the issue. And that's why many have called Galatians really the Magna Carta of spiritual liberty because Paul is saying, huh, you're not saved by any of the law. Give it up. Bit of the law, you're under the curse of the law. You think the law is going to save you? The law is cursing you. I mean, this is, this is how distorted the Judaizers' gospel was. Martin Luther, who loved the book of Galatians for obvious reasons, because he was fighting the very similar gospel in the Roman Catholic Church, said the most damnable and pernicious heresy that has ever plagued the mind of man was the idea that somehow He could make himself good enough to deserve to live with the all-holy God. And that's basically what the Judaizers are trying to tell the, the churches of Galatia. Keep the law of God and you're worthy to enter heaven. George Whitfield said, Can a man get to heaven by works? I would as soon think of climbing to the moon on a rope of sand. Spurgeon said, One might better try to sail the Atlantic Ocean in a paper boat than to get to heaven on good works. It's impossible. 
So Paul in Galatians is echoing, dealing with the very same issue of the Jerusalem Council because those people did not accept the verdict. They started spreading up through Christendom, bringing their false gospel into all these churches. So Paul meets it up with it again. And he's, he's dealing with it with his churches that, that he's the spiritual father of or, or the mother and giving birth to them. And they're attacking his children. And he's, he's ready to, to go to the wall and fight to the death, if you will, for it. Another issue that he points out is that all you need is Christ for salvation. You don't need the law. The law can't save you anyway. It's only going to curse you. All you need is Christ. So turn back to Galatians 3 and look at verse 10 again. For as many as are the works of the law are under a curse... For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them will live by them. But Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So basically what Paul is pointing out here is that look, can't be saved by the law. The law is cursing you because of your disobedience, because of your failure to God. To think that the law somehow is going to be your Savior. No, it's your judge. It's, your, it's the one who condemns you. He's the one who puts you on the scaffold for your execution and, and pulls the lever so that you drop. That's all you have. Then there is no hope. But the hope is found in Christ. Suffered the death penalty and the curse and the wrath of God, the condemnation that we deserve. He bore for us. All you need is Him. Three, verse 24 through 26, Paul says, Therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. So now you don't need the tutor. You don't need to live Christ. You don't need the tutor anymore. All you need is Christ. When Christ has arrived, that's all you need. He's the only one you need. So come and trust in Him. Abraham, you're not saved by circumcision. You're not saved by the law. Abraham was saved, justified, before any of that happened. Just because he believed. And you Gentiles get saved the very same way that Abraham does. By faith and faith. Gentile believers have this amazing spiritual status that now by faith alone, they become the sons of Abraham, heirs of Abraham, and full members of the new covenant community. Look at chapter 6. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. Now, that, now remember, he's talking mainly to Gentiles. So a Gentile believes in Christ by, by faith alone. And what Paul is saying, by faith in Christ alone, he is now a son of Abraham. 
Let that sink in for a moment. A Gentile now can be a child of Abraham and enjoy all of the covenant blessings without becoming a Jew. Without circumcision. Merely by faith alone. We say, well, how can that be? We'll look at verse 16 of chapter 3. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say unto seeds as referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed that is Christ. So all the Abrahamic covenant and promises are to him and his seed, and ultimately Jesus Christ is the seed. And all those covenant blessings are fulfilled in Christ, right? Now you as a Gentile believer, where are you spiritually and positionally now? You're in Christ. You're in the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. You're in the fulfillment of the Abrahamic promises in Christ. And we are in Christ. He is in us. We are in Him. And that's why, look down at verse 29, same chapter, Galatians 3.29. If you belong to Christ, which all you Gentiles, by faith, you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, or seed, heirs according to promise. So now the Gentiles who believe in Christ are now heirs of all of Abraham's covenant and his promises. Now this is mainly to defend the fact that look, they are full members of the Messianic community by faith. They don't have to be circumcised. They don't have to keep the law of Moses. They can be full members purely by faith in Christ. And then the most amazing verse at Galatians chapter 6, verse 15 and 16, says, For neither is circumcision anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. Circumcision doesn't matter anymore. But those who walk by this rule, that is those who walk in the translation of this even upon the Israel of God. Who's the Israel of God? Some people say, well, it's the nation of Israel. Wait a second. What has Paul been saying through the letter? Who are the true sons of Abraham? Anyone who believes. Who is in the Messiah, the seed of Abraham? Anyone who believes. Who's an heir of Abraham's promises? Anyone who believes. Jews and Gentiles. So that Gentile believers now are full members of the new covenant Israel of God. Paul later on Israel according to the flesh. But the Israel of God, the true Israel in the new covenant, the true spiritual Israel, are believing Jews and believing Gentiles. Believing Gentiles have been grafted into that covenant tree. Romans 11. Otherwise, if you say, no, no, he's just talking about the nation, then you're building the dividing wall up again that's already been torn down by Christ. How can you separate out the believing Gentiles from the Israel of God when Paul has made the effort to say that believing Gentiles are sons of Abraham, heirs of Abraham. They receive the Holy Spirit from, from being, as being a child of Abraham. And there's no difference now between Jew and Greek in chapter 3. So it seems to me that the Israel of God is the new covenant church comprised of believing Jews with grafted in believing Gentiles. All of them are sons of Abraham. 
So Paul is dealing with these same issues. They're coming up again in his home churches that he founded. But it's an issue that must be debated. It must be defended. It must be contended for. Because you don't want a, a gospel of works to come into the church. Now I'll tell you what concerns me about this and trying to wrap this up is that there are some churches that they say, well, you know, you don't have to be circumcised to be saved, but you do have to be baptized to be saved. What's the difference? If you say that you've got to believe in Jesus Christ, but Christ is necessary, but He's not sufficient because you're not saved till you're baptized. What's the difference between that Gospel and what Paul is dealing with? You just change out one covenant sign for another covenant sign. Sounds like they're, they're in danger. The greatest violation of the Gospel of the grace of God is to add anything to Christ. So where do you stand this morning? Do you really believe that you're saved by God's grace, by His gift, by His mercy alone? Or are you trusting in something that you have done to make yourself acceptable to God? Do you really realize that you're helpless? That there's absolutely nothing you can do to save yourself and nobody else can help you? Not Moses, not Mary. That you really are helpless before God in your sin? And do you really realize that you're hopeless? That you can put no confidence in your righteousness, which before God are like filthy rags, like a millstone hung around your neck that will drag you down into the lake of fire on the day of judgment if you're trusting in that. Abraham Kuyper said, people that are trusting in their own righteousness, their own good works for salvation, really are spiritual mummies. It's like you can take that, that corpse and you can pack it full of nice smelling herbs and you can paint the face and you can embalm the body with all of these these preservatives to make it last. You can clothe it in nice clothes and wrap it in a beautiful shroud, but you cannot deny the reality that it is dead. And all of our self-righteousness, all of our goodness that we present before God thinking that in some way I'm going to get to heaven because I'm a good person are nothing but the, the outward adornments you find on a mummy. It will not make you alive. It will not save you. And all of your good deeds that you think are so righteous and so acceptable to God are all infected by a bit of our own uh, pride or our own self-interest. Like the little boy that crawled out on the ice to save his, his uh, little friend and who had fallen through the ice. And he got him out safely and got him over to the, to the shore. And, and the, the newspaper heard about it and they sent out a reporter. And the reporter talked to the little boy and said, How come you, you got so brave that you would save your little friend? And the boy said, Well, I had to because he was wearing my skates. <laughs> and there's a sense in which all of our good deeds, there's a bit of a of a self-interest that's in there. There's a bit of pride. There's a bit of sin that makes it all unacceptable to God. And we're going to pray that like grave clothes before God? 
No, you are a sinner and I am a sinner by nature. And have you really come to understand the depths of your own sin, that you're helpless, that you are hopeless, that there's nothing that you can do to make yourself right with God? Nothing. And do you really realize that you're hell-bound? That if you do not repent and believe in Jesus Christ, you will stand before God in all of your sins and you will be condemned on the day of judgment. But if you believe that, that you're helpless and hopeless and hell-bound, then you're ready to meet the Savior. You've broken God's laws, but the good news is Christ has kept them. You're not righteous, but the good news is Jesus Christ is the righteous one. You're under the law's curse. But the good news is that Jesus, because of His great love for sinners, came and was willing to die on the cross and take their place and suffer in their stead that they might be forgiven. You deserve hell. But the good news is Christ offers you heaven. And it can be yours this morning by grace alone, as a free gift, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But you cannot add anything to Christ. You must come in your nakedness. You must come in your sin. You must come in realizing that you are under the condemnation, the just wrath of God. And cry out to Christ alone by faith. Lord, save me. Lord, give me a forgiveness of all of my sins. For I am a sinner. And when you come to realize that Jesus is not only necessary, that He is all you need, then you get the gift. Come and believe and receive salvation from Christ alone. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank You, Lord, for this uh, wonderful, marvelous chapter in the book of Acts, which tells us of this controversy, this explosive uh, heretical teaching that was coming into the church that would undermine the gospel of the free grace of God that You save us purely based on the merits of Jesus Christ and nothing that comes from us. And so Father, we pray that each and every one of us this morning have come to that place where we have abandoned our own self-righteousness, jumping from it like you would jump from a sinking ship. And we have placed our faith completely and solely on Jesus Christ to forgive us. If anyone is here this morning who has not done that, oh God, would you open their hearts and give them repentance and faith that they might be saved. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.